Welcome to Musings Under the Sun, a sporadic and informal podcast discussing the Bible, theology, culture, and other topics of interest. My name is Joel Griffiths, and today I want to continue talking about John Piper's newish book on providence, and I'm sure there has to be a limit on how long I'm allowed to call the book new. Uh, I'll probably just call it new for as long as it feels new to me. So today, let's just jump right into it. Chapter one, what is divine providence? What is divine providence? So it's pretty understandable that if Piper's going to write an entire 700 plus page book on the topic of providence, then it's a good idea to spend some time at the beginning talking about what providence is, giving a um, careful definition of what providence is. And so Piper is going to take some time to nail down exactly what he means by providence. If you've ever read a book by Jonathan Edwards, and I, I think I mentioned last time that uh, Jonathan Edwards is a hero of Piper's, um, but if you've ever read a book by Jonathan Edwards, you know that he was super rigorous and precise in his writing. Um, he always devoted a large part of his books simply to defining his terms. So he has a book, for example, called The Freedom of the Will. And at the beginning, he just defines what he means by will and what he means by free and what he means by volition and choice and all these things. And you're kind of wore out by the time you even get to the substance of his argument because he's he's spent so much time just defining his terms before he even starts using those terms uh, to make arguments. And it makes me think about another Puritan named John Owen. And one of the things that was said about John Owen is that he exhausted both his topic and his reader, which always kind of made me laugh. And Jonathan Edwards was was the same way. Now, Piper's not that bad, but I know that Piper cares about definitions uh, in the same way that, that Edwards did. And so it's not surprising to me to see Piper devote about 10 pages or so here at the beginning of the book just to defining his terms, defining what he means by providence. And the first thing Piper does is explain why he went with the word providence instead of sovereignty. You know, if you're familiar with discussions about these kinds of things, a lot of times the word providence and sovereignty uh, kind of get used interchangeably. But Piper says that sovereignty is more like the quality that God possesses by which he's able to do all that he pleases and by which he has the authority to do all that he pleases. But that the word providence actually implies real purposeful action in the world. And that's why he wanted to go with providence instead of sovereignty. And he talks about how providence comes from the word provide, which you probably could have guessed. Uh, and it comes from Latin, um, and when you break it down, you have pro, meaning forward or toward, and then vide, which means to see. So if you put that together, you get something like to see toward. And that might make you think of the phrase to see to. And that's kind of where Piper goes with it. You know, if I, if I were to say I'm going to see to something, it means that I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to make sure it gets done. And, and Piper says this, he says, quote, that would be what we mean by God's providence. He sees to it that things happen in a certain way, end quote. 
And then he points to Genesis 22, which is where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide for himself the lamb. And Piper points out that the, the literal language that's used there is the Lord will see for himself the lamb. And so kind of based on that, he argues that for the biblical writers, whenever God sees, it's not to be understood as just a passive kind of action. Like he's just a bystander who looks on at the things that are happening in the world but actually that his seeing implies activity. His seeing is an active thing. And that's what is meant by providence. God sees to it that things happen in a certain way. And then another thing Piper does in this chapter is he quotes from a handful of old confessional statements on this topic of the providence of God. Things like the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Westminster Larger Catechism and the Westminster Confession, and all of those are from 1561 to 1648 in that, in that span, from that span of time. And I know that for some people, these kinds of, you know, old confessional statements really just seem like relics of the past that don't really have a lot of uh, use or, or value today. Uh, but I believe there, there is a lot of value in them. Um, for one thing, they help us remember that Christians have for a long time been thinking carefully about how to faithfully express the truth of God's word. And, they've, and Christians have been doing that long before any of us came around. And I think that's just a worthwhile thing to remember. More than that, though, the, the level of precision and clarity and, and comprehensiveness that you see in a lot of these old confessions is something that's really just unparalleled to today. I know a lot of churches will have a statement of faith on their website, and typically those things just cover you know, the most basic, the most essential things that, that Christians believe, and it's the kind of thing that can usually fit on just a page or two. And I, I don't mean that that's a bad thing necessarily. Sometimes you want to condense a statement of faith down to the most essential things. For example, the most essential things you should believe in order to um, be able to join a church, that kind of thing. I think that's fine. Uh, but as you look at these old confessional statements that, that Piper quotes from, it was really about a lot more than that for them, for these, these pastors and theologians who came together uh, to write these confessions. They wanted a much more full-orbed expression of their Christian faith, and they wanted to ground that expression of the faith in God's Word, really, from start to finish. And I'm not saying everybody has to like reading old confessions, you know, uh, but I do think that we all should want a full-orbed understanding of our faith. I, in other words, I don't think it's good for us to be inclined towards saying, you know, don't bother me with all this non-essential stuff that's in the Bible. I just want the most basic stuff God has revealed. To me, that, that really is a pretty arrogant way of thinking. If God has said something, then it matters, and it should matter to us. Anyway, that's enough soapboxing. The point is, Piper quotes several of these old confessional statements, and the one that he seems to like the most is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that one was written in 1646. Uh, and I'll, I'll read to you what it says about God's providence. 
God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy." So that's the Westminster Confession's definition of providence. And one of the things that Piper likes so much about that definition is that it's comprehensive in terms of uh, God's glory and its different aspects. And what I mean is providence is not merely about the glory of God's mercy or grace, although it certainly is about those things, but it's also about the glory of his wisdom, his power, and his justice. So there's a lot about God that is glorious. And for Piper, he says providence is about God demonstrating uh, his glory in all of those different aspects. And then he talks a little bit about the question of the difference between providence and fate. So sometimes people who hold to a high view of God's providence are accused of being fatalists. In other words, they're accused of being people who basically say what's going to happen is going to happen, and there's nothing that you can do about it. That's basically what fatalism is. Fate was a very common idea in ancient Greek thought. Uh, sometimes people talked about the fates. Um, you might remember the in the Christmas song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It says, through the years we all will be together if the fates allow. And a lot of times Christians like to, to change that to if the Lord allows, which is better, obviously. Because we recognize that there's something not only pagan about the idea of fate, but also to me, there's just something cold and impersonal about it. To say that my life uh, and everything that happens to me is determined by a thing called fate just gives me the sense that my life is pretty much pointless. There's something so uninspiring about the idea of fate. So if somebody were to ask me that question, what's the difference between providence and fate? I think the first thing I would say is that fate is just a pagan idea. It's not rooted in a biblical worldview or what Piper calls a God entranced view of the world. It's just a, a pagan idea. Um, but the second thing I would say is fate is impersonal. So it's, it's true that if you go back into Greek mythology, the fates were actually goddesses who were personified as these three old women, um, and every human being's life was like a thread that they were weaving into the tapestry of history. And I'm not an expert in these things, but it, it seems to me that, that fate eventually became thought of as more of just an impersonal force, basically. So it wasn't the fates anymore, but it was just the singular concept of fate. And it's impersonal. It's mechanical. Think of getting a letter in the mail from the governor of your state, right? You don't really feel anything personal about that letter because obviously it was just copied and sent to uh, everybody in the state. And the governor's signature is just photocopied too. So all of that just makes it more impersonal. 
but even in that case, you know, your governor is a real person who's communicating with uh, the people of his or her state. So maybe we could take it a step further and just imagine that your governor was like just a robot machine that spit out communication and decisions based on randomized algorithms. And that would kind of be probably a more fitting parallel to the idea of fate. It's just a totally impersonal force. But then compare that with for example, getting a handwritten letter in the mail from a friend. And I know hardly nobody does that anymore. It's kind of a lost art. But still, the point is, it's a deeply personal thing. So you don't throw that letter away in the trash like you like you probably would do for the governor's letter uh, because it's a very personal thing. And I think that somewhat illustrates kind of the difference between providence and fate. Fate is impersonal while providence is deeply personal. And Piper doesn't answer the question in exactly that way, although I assume he would essentially agree with what I've said. But he actually just kind of turns the microphone over to Charles Spurgeon, who was the famous British preacher from the 1800s. And Piper quotes from a sermon of Spurgeon's, a sermon on the topic of providence, where Spurgeon was giving an answer to that very same question. So it's just it's interesting to think that questions that are asked by people today are uh, oftentimes ones that that people have been asking for centuries. But anyway, here's the here's the quote from Spurgeon, quote, there is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. Fate is a blind thing. It is the avalanche crushing the village down below and destroying thousands. Providence is not an avalanche. It is a rolling river, rippling at the first like a rill down the sides of the mountain, followed by minor streams till it rolls in the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the human race. The doctrine of providence is not what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race, and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. End quote. So that's Spurgeon in his inimitable way, in his very poetic way, talking about the difference between fate and providence. And then Piper makes one more point as he closes out chapter one. He says that, that God's glory, which is on display uh, in and through his providence, is, quote, for the eternal and ever increasing enjoyment of all who love him, end quote. So he's wanting to make it clear that when we talk about the glory of God and the providence of God, we're not talking about something that only has application to God. Instead, this is something that when we really come to see it is going to increase our joy and our happiness in God. And obviously this reminds me of the, the famous statement that Piper has built his whole ministry around. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So in other words, when it comes down to it, there's not a dichotomy or there's not a choice that has to be made between glorifying God on the one hand and pursuing our joy on the other. Because God himself is where maximal joy is found. Uh, we don't glorify God if we don't enjoy him. If our mindset toward God is, here you go, God, here's my worship, here's your offering, I'm, I'm doing this because it's my duty as your servant, yada, yada, that kind of attitude doesn't glorify God. 
that doesn't indicate any kind of delight in our hearts about the the goodness and the beauty of God. So Piper often says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, when our joy increases in him, when the world can look at our lives and see that for us, there's nothing in this world that's better. There's nothing in this world that can compare to the beauty and the goodness of the Lord and the privilege we have of knowing him, loving him, serving him. That's the attitude, that's the demeanor that truly glorifies and honors God. And so Piper just wants to apply that same principle to this discussion of providence. So an understanding of God's providence is intended to increase our joy in God as believers. And that's chapter one. So that brings us now to chapter two. Is divine self-exaltation good news? Is Divine Self-Exaltation Good News? That's the title of chapter two. So this is a chapter where Piper is going to talk about a common difficulty that people have with the way that God talks about himself in the Bible. And it has to do with the fact that very regularly in the Bible, God says things like, I'm doing such and such for my glory or for the sake of my great name or so that I might be praised. And when you read stuff like that, it can kind of sound like God is a very self-centered person. And of course, we know that it's it's bad and sinful for us to be self-centered. And so it can kind of feel awkward whenever we uh, read things like that, where God says over and over again that he acts for his own glory. And here's what Piper says at the beginning of the chapter, this is page 39. He says, quote, I am tempted to say that modern people find it almost impossible to receive with thankfulness and joy the relentless witness of the Bible that God consistently acts for the sake of his own glory, end quote. And after that, he says it's really not just modern people who struggle with this. It's, it's something that, that we struggle with in our fallenness as human beings, regardless of what time period we live in. And so what's the deal then? How is it okay for God to be so self-exalting in the Bible? And the first way that Piper responds to this, I thought was pretty bold and challenging, but also insightful. So he basically says that the underlying reason why we struggle with God being self-exalting in the Bible is because there's actually a deep-seated resistance inside of us to the basic truth that God is, in fact, God. And here's how he says it on page 41, quote, The idea that God is unattractive to us because he acts for his own glory cloaks a deeper resistance. He is unattractive because he is God, end quote. And if, when you hear that, you might feel like Piper is being presumptuous in a way and like maybe too bold, like you don't know me, man. What are you talking about? Um, but I would encourage you to just give it some thought. What, what he's arguing here is that this is a hidden impulse or a hidden resistance in our heart. So of course, it's not going to be something that's immediately obvious to us, but at least think about it for a little bit. And here's how I would tease it out. Think for a minute about whenever a human being is very arrogant and prideful and self-exalting, um, what, what's the question that might typically come to our minds about that kind of person? It's usually something like, who does he think he is, 
or who does she think she is? So we recognize that the problem about this person is that they think too highly of themselves. They think that they are something greater than they really are, or someone greater than they really are. But then when we read the Bible and we read about God being self-exalting and doing all that he does for his own glory, it's kind of interesting that the same sort of reaction occurs in our mind sometimes. And we would never express it like this, but if we're honest, I think the impulse is to say, God, who do you think you are? God, I'm afraid you might think a little too highly of yourself. But obviously, statements like that are absurd whenever we're talking about God, because what it means for God to be God is that he is the greatest being. He is the highest being. If there was anybody else higher or greater than him, then that person would be God. And not only is God the greatest and highest being, but along with that, he's also the source and the standard of everything that's good and beautiful and true and righteous in the world. He's the source of our life, our strength, our joy. And if, and if he really occupies that place in the universe and he occupies that place in our hearts, how can we ever actually have a problem with him being self-exalting? Because when he exalts himself, he's drawing attention to himself. And when he does that, he's drawing people's attention to the one real source of joy and satisfaction. In other words, if he did not exalt himself, he would not be loving to the greatest degree. He loves us by drawing our attention to where fullness of joy is found. And where is fullness of joy found? It's found in him. And this is why it's okay, more than okay, really, it's a positively good thing for God to exalt himself. So that's how I would explain it. Um, but of course, all of this is, I'm, I'm really very indebted to, to Piper and things I've heard him say on other occasions and in this chapter. Um, so this is something he's really helped me to see over the years. Uh, but anyway, and then Piper makes reference to um, a quote from Jonathan Edwards, again, one of his greatest heroes and influences. Uh, and it's from a book that Edwards wrote called The End for Which God Created the World. And people just don't write books with titles like that anymore. The End for Which God Created the World. And this was a book where Edwards was thinking through God's ultimate purpose or his ultimate goal in creating the world. Why did God create? And here's the quote that, that Piper gives from Edwards on page 43. So Edwards says, quote, Thus we see that the great and last end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God by which name it is most commonly called in Scripture, end quote. So Edwards was convinced, based on Scripture primarily, but also based on reason secondarily, that God's ultimate aim and purpose in creating the world was to display his glory. And I think it's important to say display his glory because something else Piper mentions is that we're not saying uh, that God somehow lacked glory and he needs to do all these things in order to get more glory for himself. That's not the idea here. God's glory is a brute fact that's unchangeable. He is glorious, period. 
He can't be more or less glorious than he is already. And then one more thing that Piper says before he's, he's done with chapter 2 is he, he points out that God's glory should not be thought of as uh, being in some kind of competition with his other attributes. So somebody might say, you know, you guys talk a lot about God's glory, but what about God's love? But you have to remember that from Piper's perspective, and I believe from the Bible's perspective, God's glory is about the full display of his attributes, which includes his love. So God saves people, and he does that for his glory, because in saving people, it displays his His love and his grace and his mercy. But also, at the same time, God executes judgment on people in the Bible. And the Bible says that he does that for his glory, too. It displays his wrath against sin and his justice and his righteousness. So God's glory is not in some kind of competition with his other attributes. Instead, his glory is about the full display of all of his attributes. And that about does it for chapter 2. And we're just going to keep plugging along with a couple of chapters at a time. Before I go today, I want to tell you about the YouTube channel that I've started for Musings Under the Sun. I'll put the link in the description so you can find that and check out the videos that are posted there. I've been doing some short devotional videos lately. So go check out the channel and subscribe so you can keep up with the videos that I post there. As always, thanks for listening. And until next time. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Mm-hmm.